I don't know if any here are Italian or have Italian ancestors. If you do, either, put your hand up. Good, because I'm not sure how true the next story is going to be, and I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to get harangued afterwards. On New Year's Eve in Italy, allegedly, the streets are quiet. Even the police are hiding away. There is nobody abroad in the town. And the reason is just for this. There's no traffic, nobody's walking, no dustbin collections, nothing's going on. The reason is, at the stroke of midnight, allegedly, everybody opens their windows and they throw out all their old stuff. They chuck all the stuff that they don't want anymore old crockery, ornaments that you received but really didn't want. There's furniture that's old and faded and broken or just not loved anymore. And a whole host of things that people own themselves, personal bits that they just, nope, don't want it. It all goes out. There are fireworks, there's laughter and there's music in Italy. They try to get rid of everything that reminds them of the past year that is unpleasant and they don't like to recall. It all goes out on the streets. Smash, crash, bang, tumble down onto the pavements and on the roads below. I don't advocate that we all do that tonight. It's a long way from our window to the street anyway, so we'd have to throw quite a long distance. But can you imagine the physicalness of just ejecting everything that is bad in your life and in your experiences and in your home just goes out the window, never to be remembered anymore. Well, that was an article that appeared in House and Garden. Not that I read such magazines, but there we are. Uh, That's where it was. Revelation 21, verse 5, which we didn't read, says this. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This is a passage of scripture that can give us hope for the future, but it also echoes something of the past in the lives of the children of Israel. If we look back at the book of Isaiah, and chapter 42 and 43, we see a couple of verses in there that may or may not be obviously linked to what God is saying in Revelation. Isaiah 42 verse 9 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. And then in verse 19 of the following chapter, chapter 43, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now these words were recalling a time of the children of Israel when they were brought out of the land of Egypt. And that event itself was full of miracles. Full of miracles. 
all those plagues and whatnot that led up to them being thrown out of the land, but not really thrown out, blessed. They were given all sorts of riches to go on their way with. But then they come to the Dead Sea, uh, sorry, the Red Sea, and they're followed up by the soldiers and it's impending doom. And the waters open and they go through and they arrive on the far shore safely and they break out in song. The leaders break out into song, reminding the people of the goodness of God. And these two portions of scripture from Isaiah hark back to that period of history in Israel's history when God would say, you thought that was good, you wait to see what lies ahead. Better, more exciting things await you in the future. I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to, you, you'll send out, I didn't say this, but you'll send out spies and they'll come back and they see the bunches of grapes are so big, two people have to carry them. It is a good and pleasant land. For the Christian, that echoes heaven. You wait to what lies ahead. You thought the past was, well, okay, maybe, or good. Just you wait for the blessings that are about to fall. Because, says God, who sits on the place of authority, power and dominion, that throne says, I make all things new. And write these things down because they are true and they are faithful. They will come to pass. Now, in, in Scripture in the New Testament, we stumble across a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when it says something like this. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Now, that doesn't mean that a believer has become sort of reformed or rehabilitated or re-educated or redressed and cleaned up like a street urchin dragged in from the gutters of the roads. No, we have been remade from the inside out. We've been recreated from our heart outwards. And that's because of the grace of God in our lives and the work of Christ and his sacrifice to cleanse us from our unrighteousness, to dress us up in clothes of, of, of salvation, garments of salvation, and robes of righteousness, to put on our heads a crown of righteousness, which really belongs to him, and make us ready for the things that are yet to come, these new things that God is going to do. And because of the recreation that we enjoy and are blessed by, we are called to live new ways. As you have received Christ, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So when we become a believer, we're recreated from within because of the love of God. We're given new hearts of flesh, not of stone. We're given a new hope. We should live in the light of that hope. And as we enter into a new year, what I want us is to think about three things. Firstly, the new hope that we have. Now, I don't mean Star Wars movie. I mean the new hope that awaits us beyond 
this life. Now, none of us know when our last day is going to be. It could be this afternoon for some of us. It could be 30 years from now, or 50 or 100. Who knows? God does. But for each one of us, is no more than a lifetime away. And that means that it could be now. So how do we look to this new hope? How do we look forwards? Someone has, has once said, actually it was Spurgeon who said, we measure distance by time. We say that a, a certain place is so many hours from us. If it's 100 miles away and there's no railroad, no roads, we think it's a long way. If there is a railway, we think it can be there in next to no time. But how far away is heaven? Spurgeon said, it is with just one sigh that we get there. That last exhalation of breath. So when we look forward to this new hope, I don't know, were you excited when you heard what Chris was reading from scripture about what lies ahead? Was it something you thought, this is going to be so thrilling, I can't wait to get there? Or were you in dread of the end of things? Were you in dread that that day will dawn and things will be found out? There's a couple of things that I want us to look about at concerning this new hope. And the first one is this new Jerusalem, which we had read for us. A little girl went into a city one day and she'd, um, sorry, she'd left the city and gone out into the countryside, got the story the wrong way around. And I've never been in this circumstance, but I think you do, you get it every now and again. Um, and to be honest, this, this, this vista that I'm about to describe to you would scare me. It really would, because I have a phobia of it. But there we go. If you go out into the wild countryside where there are no buildings and no street lights you go into like the middle of Australia and you look up at the night sky what do you see on a clear night you see a star spangled sky it is unbelievable what we cannot see in the city because of the light pollution but you get out where there isn't that and you look up for the first time and see it like this little girl who had gone from the city to the countryside. She looked up and she saw this Milky Way stretching across and all the constellations and all the different colours and brightnesses of stars. And she said to her mum, goodness me, if heaven is this pretty on the wrong side, what must it be like on the right side? The best we can think of in this world, the most attractive thing that we can lay our eyes upon pales into insignificance compared to the glory of the new Jerusalem that awaits those for whom it has been built. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem 
is the place where God dwells with his people. He is here amongst his people now by his spirit, but there it's like Eden restored. He will walk and talk with people. He will be there. Just like in John's earlier writings when he recalls that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we get to Jerusalem, we will see him full of grace and truth and glory. And wherever God is, there's peace, there's security and love. This is the place where he wipes our tears away. This is the place where there's no pain or sorrow or mourning. This is the new Jerusalem. And it's there ahead of us. It's waiting for us in the future. And it is built in eternity. It is couched and surrounded by the everlasting now, there are a number of things that the scriptures help us to try and picture and imagine what eternity might be like. John chapter 14 says it's a place that is prepared for us. John chapter 20, it says it's got no limit to its physical properties. One John says we'll be like Jesus in the future. One Corinthians says in order to get there, we'll have new bodies. It also says that our experiences there will be wonderful of wonder. And in Revelation chapter 21 is dripping with ideas and concepts, a new environment, a new experience of God's presence, new emotions, everlasting goodness. But I wonder if you're aware of this, no matter how many times Scripture talks about what awaits us and what's, take, what's it like when we're going to be there. It spends so much more effort on convincing people that it's available for free by God. I like to refer to um, what Scripture does when it refers to heaven as snapshots of glory or postcards from heaven. Just a little glimpse of what it might be like. And it's so much more than that. I don't know if you've ever been on holiday. I went on holiday once. Um, and well, I've been on holiday more than once. But I went, to, uh, uh, I went down to the south coast and I sent uh, a card back to um, my workmates and the front of the postcard was a deck chair, empty deck chair, sitting on some pebbles, Brighton Beach. Um, and on the back I wrote, whether we're here, wish you were well. Um, and when I got back, I got moaned at. Why? Why did you send such a boring picture? Well, if you've been to Brighton Seafront in the winter, it's pretty much what it's like, boring. But it didn't tell the whole picture, did it? it just my weird sense of humour to wind people up in the office. But when you send a postcard, it's just a snapshot, unless you've got one of those with all the different pictures of places that half of which you've never been to anyway, and which you did get to. But 
They're just snapshots. They're just glimpses into eternity. And scripture does that for us. It gives us glimpses. But boy, are they worth watching and looking at. Those glimpses. But it spends the majority of its time helping us to get ready to experience that. Helping us to get ready. And it does that by introducing to us this new eternity in Jerusalem, a new way of living, a new way to get there. And the first thing it describes for us is a new way of approaching or having access to God. And that's the first thing in this little section, a new access to God. And we don't have to spend all our time burning incense, putting on fancy robes, doing oblations and having a rosary of prayers that we have to repeat. We don't have to go to special places on pilgrimage. We don't have to go to special events in the church. We don't have to do anything. God says in Hebrews 10, there's a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, Jesus' death. Now, when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, a number of amazing things happened. Firstly, he died. I mean, we spent some time thinking about that recently. The immortal should die. It's beyond belief sometimes. It's beyond comprehension at the very least. But when he did die, that temple area that only very few people in all of its history had ever gone beyond, the big veil, the big curtain, that heavy-weighted curtain full of symbolism and colour and design, was torn top to bottom and a new way was opened up. The sacrosanct, the holy of holies, the place that very few went to, suddenly everybody could see it and go and touch it. I think I'm right in saying this. There's a part of Westminster Abbey Cathedral. There's a floor towards near the altar, the front end, where you're not allowed to walk on tiles. And they cover it up so people can walk around. There are parts of churches where they're barricaded off. In high churches, you've got something called the rude screen, that big wooden partition that separates effectively you from me, the people who come and the people who work in the church. Those that you can't come anywhere. How dare you? You're unclean. Well, God crumbled that to pieces. He said, the unclean can come. The unworthy are now made worthy by the death and resurrection of Christ. A new access to God. And you cannot get into heaven and live in that Jerusalem unless you go through the new way. Obscurely, Scripture gives us a description of a new bottle. Or in its own terms, a new wineskin. A new bottle. In Luke chapter 5, we read that new wine must be put into new wineskins. And then both will be preserved. If you have been made new by Jesus, if you have been born again, and you have been redeemed by his blood, if you are now clean, why on earth would you put on worm-ridden clothing? 
Why on earth would you visit filthy dens if you're so clean? Mums, dads, when your kids go out in their freshly pressed and ironed and persiled outfits on an autumn day and they see a puddle or they see a tree or they see a pile of steaming cut grass, yeah, I've dumped into them. And they come back and they're filthy. And you go, oh, why? It's just like us, isn't it? We've got this new access to God, and yet we don't live a regenerated life. We surround ourselves with unholy and filthy things. But in that new bottle, that thing that must be kept clean is new wine. And that new wine for the believer is the gift of the Holy Spirit that brings us into the position of being able to live this new way. Remember when Chris was reading from this scripture, he described the glory of the nations and the glory of the kings we brought into Jerusalem. And it said right at the very end, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Those people who express the gifts of the God, God Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. I don't think it's any uh, coincidence, really, that the Spirit is often referred to as wine in a believer's life and bears fruit. Fruit and wine seem to be similar to me. But the fruit are these. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Against such there is no law. Now, we are all happy to be loving. We're all happy to be joyful. We're all happy to be peaceful. We're all happy to be kind. We try to be good. We hope we're faithful. But long-suffering, that's hard, isn't it? And a life that is bombarding you with people that are stamping on your feet um, as a figure of speech. But this is what is required of us. As we enter into a new year, looking forward to this new hope, we have a new way to go. And that is all because we had in our lives a new start. A new start. We can't begin something new and head to somewhere new unless we start new. And that new start starts with a rule. A new rule, which we read of in John 13. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you also love one another. It's all very well saying, oh yes, I love you, you're my brother, you're my sister. And by that we probably mean, oh, I appreciate what you do. I'm thankful for what you do. I acknowledge what you do. But do we love with the love that Christ had for each other? Do we love with that sacrificial aspect of love? Do we love that with that sense of selflessness, of leaving behind everything that 
we might think is rightfully ours and giving it all up for somebody else. This is a revolutionary love. It's also a love, if we demonstrate it to those outside of the fellowship, will bring unbelievers into the glorious light of the gospel. It's not just warm feelings. It reveals itself in action. It takes the action of helping when it's inconvenient, giving when it hurts, giving time and energy when we are tired and run down, absorbing hurts without fighting back. And it's hard to do, but it's the new start on this new way to this new hope. But we also have, with part of this new start, a new garment. I've mentioned it already. By coming to Christ, we take on his clothing. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And the old, also the piece that was taken out does not match the old. We're not patchwork Christians. We're not a bit of this and a bit of that, a bit of the old, a bit of the new. We're not like jesters or chameleons. We have a new garment given by God, the righteousness of Christ. Without that, we cannot walk this new way. We need it to start the journey. We need it to start the journey. And finally, because time is rushing by, we have a new name. A new name. Right at the beginning of the book of Revelation, well, not at the very beginning, but in chapter 2, there's a really odd little phrase that appears in chapter 2, verse 17. Just find it with my bad eyes. He has an ear. Let him hear to what, what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden name, manna rather, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I don't know what you make of that name and that white stone and what it means. Scholars have disagreed and discussed it for many years. But I wonder if just thinking of it like this might help. In scripture, a name bears the character of the person. The name that you have, or a person in the Bible has, indicates something about that person, something that they are like, what they do, what their attitudes are. And God says, I give you a new name. It's a white stone on, the name is written on it. And just thinking along those lines, that we have this new character, this new outlook on life, this new worldview, these new aspirations, these new dreams and things we want to achieve. They're not the old ways of doing things. They're not the old self-fulfillment things. But these are the new start of new concepts that we should do along the new way to the new heaven.
But notice in that passage, they're individual stones. I'm not calling for us to just believe what somebody else has believed. I'm not calling for us just to follow each other's footsteps because we go around in a circle like Winnie the Pooh and Piglet trying to find something or other. We just keep going round the hill. No, we follow Christ because we have his robes. He's the one who opened up this path to us. But he calls each of us. Each of us has got a new name. Each of us has a new characteristic. Each of us fulfills our part in the body of Christ. So as we look forward into this new year, as we say goodbye to the old and throw out all the stuff out the window, we leave lots of holes and gaps within our lives. The dusty circle or the clean circle where the ornament was, the empty cupboards where the old crockery was, the gaping holes in the wardrobe where the old clothes have gone. What will we fill them with? We would just get another gaudy ornament, just get another cracked pot, get another robe of filthy unrighteousness? Or will we look forward to the new heaven, that new hope that waits for us, full of its glory and wonder and majesty, along a new way of living our lives with a new beginning that starts here and now? God bless you. We're going to turn to a time of communion, brief time of communion.